Hello, and welcome to RipperCast, your podcast on Jack the Ripper and the Whitechapel murders. We are pleased to bring to you the talks from the 2022 East End Conference that took place over the weekend of April 23rd and 24th at the Astronomer Pub in Middlesex Street in the heart of the East End of London. Suzanne Huntington is the author of the forthcoming book, The Thames Torso Murders, Fact or Fiction, due later this year by Mango Books. She most recently presented a talk on Charles Hibbert for the 2021 Casebook Jack the Ripper online conference, and her talk for this year's East End conference is entitled Unraveling the Torso Cases, A Gordian Knot. Our final talk for today is by, it says here, Suzanne. Suzanne. Suzanne Huntington, not Susie. Susie. Um, Susie was born, I'm not going to do the whole biography, you know, never knows who you are anyway. Um, but, yeah, but, yeah. <laughs> Suffice to say, Susie is going to be talking about the Thames torso uh, this day, which I know <coughs> practically nothing other than where the Thames is. Um, <laughs> the talk is called, um, talk is called Unraveling the Torso Cases, a Gordian, we've gone for Gordian, haven't we? Gordian, we've gone, we're going for a Gordian knot. Susie Hunter. Suzanne Huntington, and I am about to have a book published on the so-called Thames Torso Murders. You will, I hope, forgive me for any fluff lines during the presentation. The last time I did anything remotely like this was in 1994, and the audience consisted of 400 primary school children who were mainly preoccupied with picking their noses and breaking wind. (laughs) Now, I'm a terrible waffler, so I've had to keep myself reined in. But to summarise the subject matter for those of you who are not familiar, the Thames Torso Murders were a series of unexplained deaths that occurred in London in the late Victorian period. All the bodies were dismembered and all were adults, but in every other aspect, the cases are open to interpretation, with no common consensus on the number that are linked or indeed in some cases, if a crime has actually been committed. Today I'm going to focus on the 12 cases that make up the majority of the book, with the emphasis being the challenges I encountered whilst conducting my research and the issues we must take into consideration before we can assess the likelihood of another serial killer traipsing the streets of London at that time. I'm hoping you can all see the screen here. Um, I'm a visual person, and because of the complex nature of the cases, it helps if you can see where I'm talking about. So let's begin with a map of London. As you can see from this modern day outline, Greater London covers a considerable area, about 607 square miles. And running right through the middle is the River Thames, which makes its way eastwards out towards the Thames Estuary and the North Sea. (coughs) The area of London we're interested in is highlighted in this box here, which measures, measures roughly 21 miles east to west and 9 miles north to south. The box contains an area of roughly 189 square miles. All the body parts for all 12 cases were found here. In total, human remains were found at 49 separate locations. Some were a couple of yards away from one another, (coughs) some were miles apart, with it all depending on which case you're looking at. (coughs) I'm going to provide you now with an overview of the cases and where they were located in chronological order, which should help in contextualising matters when we discuss the issues I encountered. Our first case is the 1873 Battersea Mystery. 
Has that worked? Oh, it has worked. Awesome. Right, we have 14 body parts scattered along the River Thames between Hammersmith in the west and Woolwich in the east. No body parts were found inland, nor were there any body parts found in any other waterway in the vicinity. All were found in September of that year. And as you can see from this graphic, they were relatively evenly spread with a small cluster the north of Lambeth and around the Battersea area. If we now remove this graphic, it should work. Oh, and it does. The details, if you remember this graphic, the details of the 1873 case now from the screen, we can move on to our second case, the 1874 Mystery. The severely decomposed body of an adult female was found floating in the Thames during the month of June. Her head and arms were missing, as was her lower right leg and left foot. <coughs> we have very little information there we go. Uh, available about this case. Down here. And next we have one of our more obscure cases, the 1874 Blackfriars mystery. In September 1874, a dredger retrieved the body of an adult female from the mud near Blackfriars Bridge. She was missing the lower part of her right leg, plus her eyes, nose, and hair. The right arm <coughs> may also have been missing, although accounts vary. The body was coated in grave wax, or to use its more official name, adipocea. Not adipocea. We did it. We said it right. <laughs> I've had to phonetically put that down because I keep getting wrong. <laughs> right. um, our next two cases. There we go. Our next two cases are inextricably linked. Having both occurred in late 1884 within the same area. A parcel discovered in the gardens of Mornington Crescent was found to contain <coughs> pieces of human arm and feet. A couple of weeks later, across four sites around Tottenham Court Road, further body parts were found, although these were conclusively proven to be from a different body to that of Mornington Crescent. These are our first of the shore onshore finds, and like the second Battersea case, we have very little information to go on. Our sixth case is the Raynham Mystery of 1887, and the first of the Big Four. Now this is my terminology, and it really just means it's the first of the four cases between 1887 and 1889, which are the most well-known of the torso finds. The Raynham mystery began just off Frog Island and the Raynham Ferry, and then moved back up the Thames to finish with four sites along the Regent's Canal at Camden. All were found between May and July of that year. The Whitehall mystery of May to July, 1888, there's only two locations, but three finds. Our first is in Pimlico, can't say that, Pimlico, close to the Grosvenor Canal. And our second and third are in the vaults of the soon to be completed New Scotland Yard at Whitehall. The investigation into the death of Elizabeth Jackson in 1889 covers 12 sites. It begins at Horsley Downstairs near Tower Bridge, which is why it's sometimes known as the Horsley Downstairs Mystery, and then proceeds along the River Thames and Battersea Park. <coughs> Elizabeth is our first named victim, and she was in the later stages of pregnancy when she was found in June of that year. Probably our most famous case comes next, the 1889 Pynchon Street torso. The torso and arms of an adult female were found in early September under a railway arch in Pynchon Street, which is a short distance south of Whitechapel and the River Murders. 
And from our most famous, we get our most obscure, The Black Mystery of 18, 1892. This was the skeletonized, dismembered body of an adult, which was found under a laundry floor in February 1892, whilst building work was undertaken. It's believed the body was that of a female who'd gone missing 20 years beforehand. Our penultimate case is that of Jessie Durian, that's how I've pronounced it, I'm not actually sure how you pronounce her surname, <coughs> um, in 1898. Her body was located in three pieces within close proximity to one another in the Regent's Canal in January of that year. She had gone missing over Christmas. And lastly, we have the Salamanca Place Mystery of 1902. The partial body of an adult female was found by the back gate of Dalton's Pottery Works in Lambeth. Ten body parts were found in total, and they showed evidence of being boiled and burnt. So there we have it. The 49 locations where body parts were found between 1873 and 1902. If we take a look at this little animation on how the cases evolved, we can see immediately that the Regent's Canal and the River Thames dominate as locations. And we can see also there appears cautiously to be quite a glut of finds in the Battersea Stroke Nine Elms area. But other than that, nothing specific stands out, although you may feel otherwise. So there's quite a lot of information to take in here. And I can see already that the cogs are wearing in some of you. They might be just twirling on the side <laughs> in a rather sinister manner. But listing the cases and detailing the locations of the finds only provides us with a small part of the jigsaw. For the cases which were found in water, we have no idea where they were deposited, nor do we know if they were deposited in the same order that they were found. And this is our first major stumbling block. In an ideal world, the information that we have available on this map will be input into some clever software algorithm against which a set of criteria such as tide times, river widths, the weather, tidal ranges could also be input. This in turn would mean that we could project where and when the body parts were placed into the river and canal, which of course could then afford us some truly useful insights into the circumstances surrounding the disposal of the <coughs> bodies themselves. But as this stands, attempting such a feat is a complete impossibility because A, we need a full and nuanced set of data from the time period we are looking at, and B, the river today is very different from the river then. So let's take a look at this Leviathan, <coughs> being a thesaurus today by the way. Uh, it's the Thames uh, flood barrier, and since its inception, London has not experienced any tidal flooding or storm surges. The likes of Lambeth are now essentially dry, whereas in the late 19th century, they flooded on a regular basis. The barrier means that the river now reacts in a completely different way to what it did a century and a half ago. The tidal ranges are different, the brackish nature of the water is different, as is the floatability, I couldn't think of any other word there, of anything that's within the water. Human remains may also <coughs> decompose at a different rate, depending on the salinity along the river's course. Any enterprising researcher who seeks to replicate the movements of, say, an animal carcass in the river as a means of estimating where the body parts were deposited is going to therefore immediately come a cropper before they've even started. I'm just going to have a little sip of the old 
Nietzsche, lemonade. <laughs> My mouth goes dry. Another criteria that affects our ability to analyse matters was the construction of the London sewerage system, opened in the mid to late 1860s and designed by Sir Joseph Bazalgette. The regulations relating to raw sewage that are in place today are very different from the late Victorian period. During that time, <coughs> raw sewage was pumped directly into the river, with one of the biggest components being the southern outfall sewer and its magnificent Victorian pumping station at Cross Ness. This is the... Uh, oh, never mind. Um, it didn't do that, didn't they? Anyway, um, as we can see from the photograph in the top right-hand corner, which is relatively modern in origin, the sewer is of a significant size. Um, got to use my little hair. And the pumping station, which we can see inside and out here, is huge. It's a hugely ornamental affair, which showcases the best of Victorian workmanship. The beauty of Crossness, however, is <coughs> the fact that it pumped just short of four million imperial gallons of sewerage an hour into the Crossness holding reservoir. <coughs> this was then released untreated twice a day directly into the river. Now by anybody's standards, that's a lot of shite. <laughs> Even after 1891, when the practice stopped, the liquid remnants from the sewage remained untreated and were still being released directly into the river where it was, in theory, carried out on the tide. Now those sort of volumes are undoubtedly going to affect the flow of the river, but we don't know how because we have no data. Nor can we comment on the pollution. We're all aware of the Princess Alice disaster of 1878 and the issue of severely decomposed corpses having to be retrieved from the water. It was the belief of the authorities at the time that decomposition had been sped up due to the outflow from Crossness pumping station, but again, we are unable to verify or factor this into our own cases. <coughs> Incidentally, on the issue of flow, I contacted the RMI <coughs> at Tower Bridge as part of the research, and they confirmed that a dead body can travel both upstream and downstream from the point where it entered the water. So it's not as simple as assuming that a body would always head east out towards the estuary. And here's just a quick map showing the location of the Thames Barrier and the Cross Nest pumping station. The river is tidal for the entire stretch there. And we can see, um, uh, we can see, and Cross Ness, of course, is not the only outfall sewerage pumping station. There were others along the banks um, of varying degrees of size and impact, and we're just using Cross Ness as it's the most well-known and documented. Uh, the Princess Alice disaster, incidentally, happened around this sort of area there. So sort of halfway in between there. Um, so... Next one. And then we come to the amount of traffic in the waterways of London, which was the busiest port in the world during that period. We can see from this rather wonderful uh, postcard from 1896 that the banks of the river were packed with vessels being loaded and unloaded. The lightermen and the barges would swarm around the larger vessels and transfer their cargo on shore, or would create a wash, or would influence anything that was floating in the water. And none of it can be replicated now, it's a complete unknown. I like, I like this because it shows, I don't know if we can see it, but they're just using two oars. And they're massive boats as well. Must be. 
And you can also see here from this photograph of the narrowboat Buffalo, which worked the Regent's Canal and further afield towards Birmingham from 1891 to 1913, the canals were no different from the rivers when it came to the amount of freight being carried on them. <coughs> Most canals were less than four feet deep and had an imperceptible flow. Large heavy vessels like these coal barges would almost certainly impact on anything floating in the water. So another factor which influenced the river was the plethora of bridge building that was taking place at this time. We all immediately think of Tower Bridge when it comes to this subject. <coughs> but the impact of construction on the Thames was far greater than this one bridge alone. In fact, four out of our 12 cases occurred whilst bridges were either being constructed or reconstructed. And it wasn't just one bridge per case either. For each of the four cases, there were four bridges with building works being undertaken, which would undoubtedly impact on the, on the movement of the water nearby. Now I'm just gonna use uh, the first row of this summary <coughs> as an example of what I'm talking about. So Putney Bridge. Putney Bridge was in the process of yet another rebuild in 1873 when the Battersea mystery occurred. Its central span was also being widened in an attempt to avoid any further collisions following a particularly severe one in 1870. You can see here the wooden 26 span bridge after the alterations had taken place. <coughs> the second photograph shows the bridge in 1880, along with an aqueduct that had been constructed during the 1850s. This alternative angle shows quite a lot of river traffic, including the use of the water for leisure in the foreground. We can also see the extensive number of bridge supports being maintained at that time, all of which would have had an impact on the flow of the water. Gonna have this before I dry up again. Right, now we're gonna move on to 1885, and this what I think is a fantastic photograph. I really love this photograph. Uh, this shows us just how influential <coughs> the construction of a bridge can be on the way the river itself reacts. The aqueduct we saw in the previous photograph is now being used as a sort of platform to construct the five stone spans that would form the new Putney Bridge. We also have construction traffic in the foreground and the old bridge still in existence and still being used to the right. And here you can see a modern day photograph of the new bridge which is still in existence as you can see, we have five spans made out of stone, which replace the 26 <coughs> spans made out of wood. So construction work in general, not just the bridges, but anything that involved the displacement of water could affect objects floating in the river. And this influence could, in theory, change not just on a daily basis, but on a tidal basis as the building works evolved and it's impossible to factor this in to any analysis that we may choose to undertake. Furthermore, we not only struggle with the direct impact that bridge building may have had on the four cases in question, but because bridge building remains ongoing in London, we're also up against it when it comes to analysing any of the cases in general for the simple reason that the riverscape is completely different now to then. Frustratingly, frustratingly, we can't even compare similar cases to one another for the same reason. If we take the 1873 Battersea Mystery as an example, on face value, it's very similar to the 1889 case of Elizabeth Jackson. But the river was a very different beast in 1873 to what it was in 1889. So any comparison would be subjective at best. 
Okay, so let's move on from the uh, water-based issues for now. Uh, plenty I could still talk about, such as uh, rainfall, fog, uh, wind, not me, incidentally, the wind. And I'm conscious that I'll bore you to death. So, <coughs> let us instead move on to newspapers and the reporting of the cases. For some of you, this section will be very familiar, as the experience I had will no doubt be similar to experience other researchers have had on many other subjects. We're going to look for a moment at the 1888 Whitehall mystery. One of the key events to occur was when the retrieval of workman Frederick Wildbull's tools from the vaults underneath the construction site at New Top Scotland Yard had resulted in a torso being found. That's the world's most difficult sentence to say, by the way. <laughs> and because Wildbull's account of how long the torso had been there had been there differed from the other workmen on the site, it became essential for me to research his background because he could and has been mentioned as a possible suspect in the killing. My first port of call in conducting the research was the British newspaper archive, and because I wanted to get as much background information as possible, I kept the search details at high level with generic search entries such as the Whitehall mystery or torso found in Whitehall. Based on the outcomes of these searches, Mr. Frederick Wildball had his name spelt like this. I like that one, Wildhee. That's my favourite. <laughs> and that's not including all the ones that actually came up with just symbols and punctuation marks. <coughs> So we have 20 different spellings of Frederick and Wildball. Now that's not too much of an issue when you're looking at matters generically, such as a case overview, but it is a problem when you're wanting to look at Frederick Wildball himself. It threatens your research when you consider that had <coughs> I performed the search under his specific, correctly spelt name, 19 out of the 20 articles would never have appeared on my radar. But it's not just text recognition software that can cause a problem. Errors from journalists, telegraph operators and printers are also of concern. <coughs> using Frederick using Frederick Wildball as an example again, we note that newspaper articles have him living at Mansell Road, Clapham Junction in 1888. Although many people will know the area where Clapham Junction is located, it is not an official district of the capital. So we're therefore looking for a Mansell Road near the actual physical Clapham Railway Junction. If you look on any map of your choice, I defy you <coughs> to find a Mansell Road that's near to Clapham Junction. It's just not there. But there is a Maisel Road, let's see, here. And that practically backs onto the railway junction at Clapham. So you have to weigh up the possibility of the journalists who attended the inquest mishearing the address. So you have Mansell, Maisel, Mansell, Maisel. I think it's pretty likely he misheard it, but of course I could well be wrong. And then we look at another example, this time in relation to the Pynchon Street torso of 1889, and a widely circulated article. Now we learn that the victim was a prostitute who had been disemboweled, decapitated, and had her arms cut off. We also learn that the police believed it to be the work of Jack the Ripper, and that this murder is the worst of the Ripper murders so far. I mean, this article is complete bunkum from start to finish. Firstly, there is no way of knowing if the victim was a sex worker because her identity has never been established. And as far as I'm aware, sex workers generally don't have a tattoo on their backside saying I am a prostitute, uh, which means they could be identified. She was also not disemboweled. She had one cut from her breastbone down to her genitals and that didn't break into the abdominal cavity. 
And as for the mutilations <coughs> being the worst of the Ripper's work, well, whilst these are deeply unpleasant, they are not on the scale of Catherine Adair's or, of course, Mary Jane Kelly. And finally, there's the minor error of the journalist reporting that her arms have been removed. I say a slight error because it was actually her legs that were removed by the perpetrator. Now, either the journalist had a serious case of anatomical confusion or it made the entire article up. Another issue that crops up relatively frequently was the danger of using a single source to formulate <coughs> a theory or an argument. Again, this will be very familiar to many of you, both as researchers yourself and, of course, as non-fiction readers. We have all come across the books which are highly selective in the provision of evidence the ones which tout a theory and patently ignore anything that's inconvenient. As I was attempting an unbiased account of the torso cases, I was lucky that I had no preconceived theory in mind before I began to write. But I can now understand far better how mistakes are made with single source material. Now I'm going to use Pynchon Street again as an example of what I'm talking about. In this first article, we learn that unspecified bloodstained clothing was found in Hooper Street, which is described as nearby and in a warehouse yard. In this second article, we are told of a demolished Baptist chapel in Mill Yard Passage, which leads from Lehman and Cable Street. The press inform us that a white body soaked in blood was found here within a hundred yards of Pynchon Street. Now some of you out there who know precisely where I'm talking about, you're going to have to keep your zipper shrimpy for this bit. So for the rest of us who are not immediately familiar, but who are influenced by the likes of the apron at Goulston Street, it would seem that the perpetrator was potentially discarding bloodstained clues around the district. And if you read the first bit of this next article, we're once again drawn into another supposed site of interest, this time when a chemise, is it chemise, how do you pronounce it? Chemise? Chemise. Chemise. It's found by some railway workers. And when we read on, we come to learn that in fact, Millyard Passage backs onto the old Baptist church <coughs> site, which is now owned by the railway company, whose warehouse and yard is accessible via Hooper Street. In other words, <coughs> all three articles are talking about the same find and the same location, but they're describing it from different angles of perception. If you look here, Millyard Passage goes from Lehman Street to Cable Street, you can only get so far. It's right next to the brown bear. Goes under the railway yard. And is um, and Hooper Street, which is a dominant railway arch, has a large warehouse and a yard which backs onto Mill Yard Passage. So if you look there, Pynchon Street, you can get to Hooper Street that way and that way and access it down there. <coughs> Both are within a short distance of Pynchon Street, although this distance varies depending on whether you're entering Mill Yard from Cable Street, <coughs> Beeman Street, or if you go the long way around via Hooper Street. There is also a probable alley which goes along here as well as access underneath the railway viaduct. And it's not just newspapers, of course, that need to be treated with caution. Genealogy sites are also a minefield of unexploded ordnance waiting patiently to trip you up. I didn't want to put blow you up in case it got banned from Facebook. Right. <laughs> the, three, the three main sites I use were ancestry.com, findmypast.com and familysearch.com. And the amount of information they hold is truly staggering. Uh, they've become a very long way since their early years, which were just like 
census returns and birth marriages and deaths. I've used them to research apprentice details for the Leiterman on the Thames. Um, I've looked at pension records of the Metropolitan Police, which provides a wealth of additional information on the police involved in the cases. And of course, I've <coughs> accessed workhouse, infirmary and criminal records. I wouldn't have been able to do the book without these sites. But as a purveyor of information, they are not infallible. And I'm going to use our old friend Frederick Wildbore as an example of the errors that he made. After much cross-referencing of newspaper reports and the genealogy sites, I'm going to start by confirming these are the details of Frederick Wildbore. So there we have here Frederick Augustus Wildbore, who was born on the 2nd of November 1842 in Curtin in Lincolnshire. How I got to that result was long and at times very painful, not physically of course. Just to demonstrate some of the anomalies that cropped up, the following three slides are the census records for Frederick from 1851 to 1921 for all three of the sites I mentioned. <coughs> Red font means the record has either been transcribed incorrectly, is still missing, or the census taker has misinterpreted the information at source. Nobody, I was expecting somebody when I said census taker to go. <laughs> but anyway. <clears throat> Show me age there with the reference. Result, oh, I've done that bit. As you can see, there's plenty of red pen on the early census records, which is to be expected. Um, I particularly like the fact that the 1861 census has his middle name down as Anne, by the way. That's uh, <laughs> interesting. And you can see here the letter A instead of Augustus. Um, is prevalent, but it isn't particularly problematic. But missing records, dates, etc., can become more of a problem because of the need to cross-reference records <coughs> to satisfy yourself that you've got the right man. And here, um, we've only got one record for the 1921 census, but that's understandable because it's only Find My Past that's currently got access rights to that. So you can see what may be just a couple of paragraphs in the book has actually taken weeks and weeks of research. I did eventually find this rather lovely picture of Frederick Wildmore, stood here celebrating his golden anniversary with his wife. And yes, I know he does look a little bit like Charles Lechner <laughs> before anybody says anything. Moving on. Now, all those weeks of research also failed to bring up anything suspicious that could turn Frederick Wildball into a viable suspect. So he's off the hook. Only. There was just one minor little issue with all this work. Tiny, weeny little issue. As I was merrily writing this talk a couple of weeks ago, I casually reviewed my notes and found out that I got the wrong Frederick Wildball. All for nothing. So I did this. I would do that again because I really like it. Took me ages to work out how to do that. <laughs> I should have been looking, I shouldn't have been looking at Frederick Augustus Wildbore, a builder living in London at this time. I should have been looking at Frederick John Wildbore, a carpenter living in London at this time. I mean, what are the chances of that happening? Name me anyone you know with the surname Wildball. And two, with identical first and surnames and near similar professions. And no, they were not father and son before anybody jumps to that conclusion. To say I was frustrated was an understatement. <coughs> These things happen, and once I get back from the conference, my first job will be to start the whole Wildball saga again from scratch. 
Okay, so I'm fast running out of time, and I could go on with all sorts of trials and tribulations associated with the cases, but I won't. There's beer to be sucked, apparently, Andrew. Um, so I understand. Um, so I'm sorry if I didn't get onto the subject of medical reporting, and in particular, Charles Hebert's post-mortem <coughs> reports on the four cases between 1887 and 1889, but that's a talk in itself. I've also failed to mention the caution that needs to be applied when interpreting the language used at the time and how it sometimes significantly differs in meaning from that of the use today. But I'm babbling. I hope I've succeeded in conveying how complex an area of research the subject is and I hope that you've not all fallen asleep. <laughs> Thank you from the comfort to the conference team for allowing me to do this. Back over to you, Carl. Thank you. <laughs> Never thought I'd hear the word wild boy used so often. <laughs> <laughs> that was absolutely fantastic. I'm really interested in the river Thames and murders and what have you. Due to my Sherlock Holmes obsession. Um, does anyone have any questions, please, for Suzanne Scripps? <laughs> yes, sir. You mean within the sense of just the torso, do you mean on, on a, in a wider context? Just the torsos, and as you think there is any overlap with the ripple. I think it's a lot easier to work out from the 12 cases the ones that are definitely not linked than the ones that may be linked. Um, the likes of the 1892 case at, uh, at Blackheath, for instance, that is, if, when you, if you want to buy the book, of course, um, it's quite clearly that's a standalone case. Um, Blackfriars in 1874, again, <coughs> quite clearly a, a, a standalone case. But then the the water gets a lot more muddy when you're looking at the original 1873 Battersea case, uh, and then uh, Raynham, Whitehall, and Elizabeth Jackson. Um, I've got my own personal thoughts on the probability of them, of them being linked, but I wouldn't say any of it is a cast iron theory on it. I think I've got a question as well. The, the land deposits, the ones on land, I think one was connected <coughs> to a Someone, there's a Shelley connection. Isn't there, the That's Elizabeth Jackson, so it's, yeah. it's not just land. It's um, do you think there was any deliberate, was there a commentary going on there, where they were placed, and this Scotland Yard as well? Um, for Elizabeth Jackson, I don't read anything at all into the um, Shelley link. Yeah. That's my own personal yeah. opinion. Purely because when you see where all the other body parts were um, deposited, it's, it's, I think it was just happened to be a coincidence that the body part was deposited over some railings that Percy Shelley's yep. house had been. Also, um, the Shelley uh, family weren't actually living in that house at that point. Um, what was the question? It was, I was thinking, I mean, with the Scotland Yard deposit. Oh, Whitehall, and, yeah. and also the Pinton Street. I, I, I get the impression there is some kind of, I don't think they were, the, the killers were one and the same. There is, I get the impression there's, there's a statement being made that I'm here too, and it's right in your patch there that I've left the body. Um, I think Whitehall is a different answer to Pynchon Street. Yeah. I think Pynchon Street is more of a statement kill than uh, Whitehall. My own personal opinion on Whitehall is that um, it's more to do with the workmen than the actual place. Oh. Um, Pynchon Street, Pynchon Street's a curious one, yeah. it really is a curious one. Um, I th there's an element to me with Pynchon Street that thinks it was almost, well not copycat, but a, a person who was trying to sort of tar the jacket with a Jack the Ripper yeah, aspect of it. But it's, it, with, with 
a lack of information. Yeah. Any anything you're going to say is, is pure speculation yeah. anyway. Yeah. Speculation here. <laughs> if any of the body parts found in the Rugitz Canal mm -hmm. are linked to the body parts found in the Thames, mm -hmm. do you think there's a possibility of a third waterway being involved? A third waterway? As in the Grand Union Canal. Um, no. If I'd have done on a, the first map, the, yeah. the uh, Greater London yeah. map, in the book I've actually done a, a, yeah. a map rather. Andrew's helping with the maps. Yeah. Um, you'll see how it all feeds in, into one another. Yeah. Grand Union Canal linked into the Regent's Canal, yeah. but the Regent's Canal only goes to Limehouse. Well, there's the Limehouse yeah. cut as well. Yeah. Um, so I think it's a bit. But the Grand Union does lead down and feed on into the Thames. Does it? Yeah. Yeah. Oh, that shows what I know, doesn't it? Where? Where? Oh, Teddington. Yeah. Oh, right. Where, I've discounted. Sorry, I'm up to yeah. now. I'm, I've discounted that aspect of things because it's so far up along Fair enough. up the, the uh, uh, river. Because you've got Putney, I think. Well, there's the one in Hammersmith, yeah. and that's it. But it all starts from Putney onwards. Yeah. Um, it's not a no. no. I look forward to reading. It's not a no, but it's. I don't know. It just no. for me, it's. I am looking at speculation rather than it smacks. It, it smacks to me the the water-based ones. It smacks to me that it's something to do with maybe the workmen that work on on it. Yes. I don't, but it doesn't mean to say that the, the, if they did deposit it in the the uh, river, yeah. it doesn't mean to say they killed them. No. Because it could well mean that they're not murderers anymore. Well, I wasn't going to say that. What I was going to say was. They could have been paid. Yeah, but there's no nothing to say. They're so actually, just because just because they're in those river, yeah. the river and the, the Regent's Canal. Yeah. I mean the the first um, Whitehall one is is actually just right onto the Grosvenor Canal, yes. which is only about two hundred yards long. I know. So my gut reaction, it's more to do with who's on the river than actually like Jonathan made out yeah. that it's. Well, it's a statement, because I don't think you yeah. can make a statement no. when you're dumping stuff but in the river, because it's too subjective where it's going to go. Are, those people on the river are possibly likely to work on more than one waterway. I think that there's, there's, a, there's a possibility of, yeah. of that, yes, yeah. definitely. I was, I don't, I don't, let's put it this way, I don't think you can rule it out. No. Yes. I'm not sure how to uh, ask this question. Um, with regards to the time period, um, what happened with the body parts? Did the police keep them until, in case another part of the body turned up, or were they just buried? It depended on the case. Um, some of them, uh, one was actually exhumed. Um, I first think it was Raynham that was that it was exhumed. Um, so some, it was they were straight away buried. They were just, you know, can't do a lot with this. Off it goes. So the, the 1874 uh, White Friars, White Friars, Black Friars, um, that was almost immediately. Other than the fact that the, it, they were interested in the fact that there was <coughs> corpse wax on it, the Adipo Sir. <laughs> Come on, I can say it. <laughs> Other than that, um, which caused a medical interest, they weren't bothered about the potential of, you know, the arm and, and the, the legs turning up. But at the same time, all the big, all the, the four, not the four, the, the Raynham, Whitehall, Elizabeth Jackson, and the 1873 Battersea case, all of them, they held the body parts back. Particularly the 1873 Battersea case, uh, because there's this absolutely grotesque account of them, uh, trying to reconstruct the face without a skull and actually pinning it onto a wooden board <laughs> so for people to actually be able to recognise who, who the person is. I mean, God knows what the must It's not like the face of Bo, if anybody knows. <laughs> <laughs> Today, they would, they would take DNA from, from the bone yeah. or whatever. Yeah, but, I mean, there, obviously you've got things like, like um, Whitehall being another good example. They literally fitted 
an arm that they got and they found a torso they, they put them together and the joint it, they joined together so they knew it was from the same body same with like um Mornington Point and um, Tottenham Court Road, they tried to join them together and realised that somebody would have to have three legs. So, <laughs> so obviously you know it's from, from two separate bodies. But it, it very, it's not an easy, easy way to answer uh, the, the question really because it depends on the case. How much do we know about Elizabeth Jackson? Uh, we know quite a lot actually about Elizabeth Jackson. Um, she was... Um, uh, a lady who um, be became acquainted with a uh, gentleman called Faircloth. Sometimes they call him Faircloth, but he's actually Faircloth. And um, he was by trade, um, I don't know what the, the word is, where to sharpen up the knives for um, mills, like millstone. <coughs> and um, she got pregnant uh, with him. And it all went a bit pear-shaped. He couldn't get, uh, they were over in Norfolk, he couldn't uh, get any employment there. They went, walked it back from Norfolk to Ipswich, back to, uh, to London. And she was, yeah. at that point, probably about six months <coughs> pregnant. And um, he still couldn't get any work in London. So he packed his bags and off he went uh, to work. Uh, well, he ended up in, I think it was Exeter, is where he was actually, uh, they, they found him. <coughs> but uh, Elizabeth, at that point, she was destitute, um, and there's a very strong possibility that she was prostituting herself yeah. by the end of it. Um, she had the baby, did she? No. The, the, uh, that's another thing, unfortunately, rather unpleasant aspect of, of that particular uh, death, is that whoever... Um, killed Elizabeth, um, removed the fetus. So, but they removed the fetus but left the uterus. Yes. Interesting. Yes. Okay. Not Thank very you. pleasant. Thank you. Okay. How are we done? Quick, where's the bar? Thank you very much. Rippercast would like to thank all of the speakers at the 2022 East End Conference for allowing us to release this year's presentations. And a special thank you to the organizers, Carl Kopek, Andrew Firth, Mark Ripper, and Adam Wood. If you would like more information on the East End Conference, you can join their group on Facebook or follow us here at Rippercast and we'll keep you updated. Thank you for listening and we'll see you next time.